welcome to Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that has full confidence in its presenter, even if it wouldn't use precisely his words. I'm Andrew Harrison, and the government has laid on an absolute feast for us today. After weeks of attempting to commit political suicide by newspaper op-ed, and then encouraging far-right hooligans to protect a cenotaph that is already protected by her responsibility, the police, Suella Bravman has finally, finally been defenestrated. And in a plot twist that nobody could have foreseen, former PM on a gap year David Cameron has been released from his contemplation caravan to take up the reins at the Foreign Office. What is going on? Can Cameron save Sunak's bacon? And how long before Bravman makes the inevitable leadership challenge? We'll be talking about all that and more. Plus, also, after many more councils cancelled their free fireworks display this year, citing tightening budgets and replacing them with ticketed events, are we pricing kids out of access to culture and even to harm? Fun. We have a crack panel to deal with these issues. Rachel Cunliffe is Associate Political Editor of the New Statesman. Hello, Rachel. Hello. So we'll be talking about the fall of Cruella and the rise of Baron Greensill in a bit. <laughs> but in other exciting news, Farage and I'm a celebrity. I mean, this is often like the graveyard of politicians, possibly literally, what with all the black widows that they have down there. What are you <laughs> expecting? Uh, I'm hoping that he will uh, be forced to eat some inappropriate things. I think we all enjoyed it when Matt Hancock had his uh, had his stint. And I can't remember, was it cow's vagina, kangaroo penis? Something like that. Both. Weird country. Yes. It's a kangaroo uh, anus or something. <laughs> kangaroo anus, there we go. Yes. Uh, but on a slightly more serious point, um, Matt Hancock did manage to kind of take um, undergo a little bit, a bit of a, a relaunch there. His popularity yeah. ratings went up the more horrible, humiliating stuff he was put through. And Nigel Farage is not stupid. You can say lots and lots mm. of things about him, but he is absolutely not stupid. So if he's doing this, partly it will be for the money. I think the the fee that uh, is reported is £1.5 million. Supposedly for, the highest ever. Yeah. yeah, nice work if you can get it. I still wouldn't. Um, <laughs> but there's also a publicity angle here too. And he will know how best to try and come across and we've got an election coming up in the next year possibly sooner than we thought it will discuss that later i interviewed richard tice last week who is leader of reform uk which is what the brexit party now calls itself which is farage's party and he was really clear that they are going for it and going to try and win as many votes off the tories as they can nigel farage is still associated with that party so yeah it's it's going to be uh, australian jungle political ad essentially oh, like connect with the people by eating kangaroo anus it worked for matt hancock well yeah he, he was in a pit wasn't he he was a kind of a, a you know his, his brand was at rock bottom and farage kind of doesn't need it farage is no. for all of his, his his many many appalling characteristics he has this kind of demonic charisma he, he does but that's why i think it could work for him because i imagine people will tune in to watch him do horrible, horrendous things and end up going, you know what, I actually quite like him because he does have that that charisma. And I, at least I think, I imagine that's what the strategy is, whether it will play out or not. I can't watch it because I don't like creepy crawlies and the whole thing makes me go, Bleh. but uh, I'll be looking forward to hearing what ordeals he has put through. It's the continuing end of the purification of British politics. <laughs> also joining us is journalist and historian Seth Tavo. Hi, Seth. Hello. So uh, the House of Lords Appointments Committee, or HOLAC, will be cropping up later in the podcast. Times sources say that Mark Littlewood, the head of the IEA think tank and the kind of public champion of trustonomics, is no longer on Liz Truss's resignation honours list. He's, he's, he's been removed. It seems he hasn't passed vetting. What, what, do, you, what do we know about this? Um, I mean... Holak are in an interesting place because they, they really don't like commenting on this at all. The entire peerage system is shrouded in mystery and secrecy. Um, they're very angry about the fact that the last two times they tried aggressively to block someone, it was overruled. Firstly with Lord Lebedev and then with um, Peter Crudus. Um but we know that Mark Littlewood's a fairly controversial character. Um, we know, for example, you've had things like uh, undercover journalists recording videos of him boasting of the IEA's level of access to government ministers. Now, I should say the IEA is famously litigious. And unless I insert here their side of the story, we'll doubtless hear from them very soon. But they will argue that, of course, they were cleared by a charity commission investigation of any impropriety. Uh, the thing about the whole secrecy of HOLAC 
is that they don't actually have to depend on people being guilty of something. They can just say, well, something doesn't look great. And so on that basis alone, they can veto people from being peers. And so if indeed it's the HOLAC stage that's blocked him, that may well be the sort of thing that's happened. If it's on the basis that it doesn't look great, why isn't the entire Liz Truss resignation that's <laughs> being screwed up and thrown into a waste paper basket on the other side of the room? Because none of it looks great. Echo question. Yes, fair enough. <laughs> can, can, can I can I do one Mark Littlewood fun fact? Because I also interviewed him um, uh, a couple of months ago, and he is planning to write a book on. Oh, let God. me see if I can get this right. It's on how the first ten movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe are a covert. Uh, advertisement for free market libertarian. I will not have that. He's <laughs> not having Marvel. No, you take filthy hands yeah, off Marvel. I, I know. I know that listeners of this podcast are often presenters of this podcast. Presenters very... as well. Well, his point is that you've got Iron, Iron Man, who's a uh, an innovator, an individual. He's an arms dealer, and he's it's a the tech government. bro dick who learns how to not be a tech bro dick. That's the, the whole point. Well, he would say that the the uh, the plot point of um, Captain America: Civil War is should the government regulate super heroes and often it's the government that's stepping in and being incompetent. I'm just saying that this book is coming and we should all be ready for it. <laughs> I would, I, I've, been, I've been ready for this since 1972, Rachel. You know, I would I would absolutely pay to go and watch a debate between you and Mark Littlewood specifically on the philosophy of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Welcome okay. to the culture war. We'll make it happen. <laughs> Completing the panel, it's Yasmin Serhan, staff writer at Time Magazine. Hello, Yasmin. Hello. So, obviously, we've been talking about ridiculous stuff right up, up to now, but the the horrors of the Israel and um, Israel Hamas war continue to to dominate the, the the front pages. You, however, this week have been speaking to Knesset members mm. about the Israeli government suppressing dissent about the war within Israel. This is the Netanyahu government. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I mean, we've discussed this on previous podcasts, but there is virtually no part of the the land that sits between the river and the sea, to use a, a unpopular phrase, but that geography, there's kind of no bit of it that's doing well right now, whether it's Gaza, which is experiencing, as you just said, the the kind of most extreme horrors to the West Bank where, um, you know, the, there's a lot of increasing violence, particularly between um, Israeli settlers and, and the Palestinians who live there. Um, and indeed, in Israel proper, what we're seeing now is a I think a disconcerting effort to really crack down on uh, particularly anti-war voices. So, um, and and this has particularly been seen among Israel's minority uh, Palestinian or Israeli Arab community. Um, so, just last week, um, some very senior leaders in that community, including a few former Knesset members, were detained for attempting to organize a relatively small kind of vigil protest. And this is effectively done because. Uh, the Israeli authorities have said that they're not going to allow any sort of anti-war protests, big demonstrations, though some have attempted to, um, to be done. But in addition to that, um, the, and that, I should mention, has been done with the Israeli high court's backing. Some human rights orgs have petitioned to basically get rid of that ban, um, and the Israeli high court um, declined to do so. Um, also, um, Israeli lawmakers last week passed an amendment to... Um, their, uh, their criminal, sorry, not criminal, their uh, counterterrorism legislation, which fact effectively made it a criminal offense to consume what they call terrorist materials, which humans, human rights organizations have warned could criminalize even passive social media use. And already in, it, since this war began, really, we've seen lots of particularly Palestinian citizens of Israel get arrested um, because of Facebook posts or WhatsApp statuses. Uh, in particular, there was a, a popular Palestinian singer um, who posted an image of a Palestinian flag in the caption, there is no victor but God, and she got arrested. Um, and, and I think there have been other instances with like Quranic verses being shared and that being sort of interpreted to be um, a threat or supporting Hamas in some way. So Ada Tumisliman, who's um, a uh, a member of the Knesset for the Hadash party basically told me that this is an effort not just to kind of criminalize Palestinian identity among the minority Arab population in Israel, but also an attempt to kind of quash any sort of dissent um, to the war. I think what's interesting, though, is that obviously, you know, before kind of the devastation of October 7th onward began, Israel was consumed by these democracy protests. Yeah. Um, I don't think this issue is getting a massive amount of attention, A, because Gaza yeah. Um, but B, because I, I think you're not, at least I haven't seen a big uproar among Israelis uh, about the lack of kind of protests. 
And I suspect that that may be because actually um, a majority or at least a plurality um, of Israelis who've been polled support um, the war effort. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a difficult conversation to be had within Israel right now about its the state of its democracy and, and to what extent these kinds of protests are allowed. I mean, we're having that conversation here in the UK, but um, but I just don't think people have the emotional bandwidth to do that right now. First up this week, big thanks to the government for scheduling a major sacking before the podcast rather than rise afterwards the minute we finish recording for a change. It is heartbreak for the tofu-eating Wokarati as podcast favourite Suella Braverman is fired after a torrid week in which he claimed the police were showing favouritism towards left-wing protesters, described homelessness as a lifestyle choice, and was accused of inciting a far-right mob to invade the Senesaf on Remembrance Day. James cleverly has replaced Braverman as Home Secretary, but if you had a fiver on David Cameron to come back as Foreign Secretary as a Baron, then please let us touch you the hem of your garments for luck. Rachel, all weekend the talk is whatever Sunak does, he makes it worse for himself. You yourself called it. You, you yourself called it Zugzwang. Thank you so much for not making me pronounce that word. I can't pronounce it. I just tried <laughs> Zugzwang. Um, the chess move where whatever you do, you lose. Um, can firing Braverman improve his fortunes at all, or did he just have no alternative but to do it? So it was a really difficult position for Sunak because Braverman is a liability. She keeps going freelance and saying all this stuff. Or I should say she kept going freelance because yes. we can talk in the past tense now, uh, whether that's on the hurricane of migration or living in, in tents being a lifestyle choice, her comments on homelessness. And she doesn't really go and defend her own comments. She sort of makes these speeches or she tweet things and then it would be other cabinet ministers on the broadcast round who would be asked, and do you support the Home Secretary? And have to do this really difficult balancing act of, you know, the Home Secretary has highlighted a really important problem. I wouldn't necessarily use that language. And this all came to a head with the with the protests at the weekend. I think the difficult position for Sunak on Friday was if you sack her on Friday after she wrote this op-ed that wasn't cleared with number 10, accusing the police of bias, if you sack her and then the protest does kick off and descend into violence, particularly that the pro-Palestine march uh, ends up in a... In, in, civil disruption or there's, a, there's issues with remembrance and armistice day in the Senate off, then she looks vindicated. Instead, what happened was that march was mostly peaceful. We can have a conversation about some of the language used on it, but was mostly peaceful. And it was the counter protests sort of the far right that turned up people who were allowed to be near the Senate where the pro-Palestine marchers weren't because they were protecting it. They're the ones who got into clashes with police. And that changed the dynamic, I think, a little bit because then you can point very clearly to a Home Secretary who has made the police's job harder, made the tensions worse, and what she warned about didn't even come to pass. Ergo, yes, here's the moment we can sack her. It's also a helpful moment for him to, to sack her on a completely different topic because on Wednesday, the Supreme Court is going to rule on the legality of the government's Rwanda plan. Uh, we have no idea which way that's going to go. But if it goes against the government, Suella Braverman has very openly called for the UK to leave the ECHR. Rishi Sunak not so keen on leaving the ECHR. That would have presented her with an opportunity to quit on principle and uh, sort of resign as a, as a martyr to that cause. And now she can't because she's gone. Mm. But she seems to be an angling to get fired for weeks. You know, sort of everything that has been coming out of her um, has been designed to step out of line from cabinet policy to, just, to run roughshod over cabinet responsibility. Does she want this? Did she want to be defenestrated so that she can kind of be removed from the bounds of the, you know, the bindings of cabinet and get on with what she really wants, which is to try and become the leader of the Conservative Party? So that's a really interesting question. And certainly her tweets are on... Did you say tweets? Say posts on X? No, yeah. you know what? I'm uh, sticking X's. with tweets. Mm. No, they were there. Twitter. Twitter. Her tweets at the weekend, where after there, there was this clash of protesters, she then went off tweeting basically that she had been right when obviously she hadn't been. That did look like somebody daring the prime minister to to sack her. But I think we shouldn't underestimate the fact that being Home Secretary gives you a massive 
platform, people have to listen to what you say when you're the Home Secretary because you're the Home Secretary. If you're a random backbencher who used to be the Home Secretary, the amount that people will listen to your mad comments dramatically reduces. I mean, we, we talked a lot, I remember, about how Preeti Patel would fare on the backbenches, how much trouble she would cause for Rishi Sunak. We've barely heard a peep yeah. out of her. So I think giving up that platform is not something that Cabinet ministers tend to take lightly and maybe she was trying to see how far she could go equally maybe she's so used to being able to say whatever she wants and there being zero consequences that she perhaps didn't realise that on this one there might be a line and that she'd crossed it. I think as you pointed out in the New Statesman, if you're talking like this while you're in the position of power, it actually shows you're quite weak. Yeah, so that's the other factor in this, which is that even people who agree with her stance on the protest or agree with her on immigration or law and order are a bit fed up by the fact that she keeps drawing attention to all of these issues and then the government doesn't really do anything on them or the government failure is highlighted. And actually, it was... I'm not sure if I'm allowed to cite another podcast here, so I'm very, very sorry if I'm breaking the rules. But there's this other podcast with these two guys who used to be sort of fairly significant in politics. Um, this guy, George Osborne, another one, Ed Balls. Yeah. You might have heard of them. Don't know it, yeah. I don't I don't listen to it most of the time. Um, but George Osborne made a point on that, that uh, if you are commenting in the column pages of a newspaper... That's a position for people who don't have actual power and actual authority. You're the Home Secretary. You could do something about this. And it actually undermines her position to rather than uh, ban the protest herself or pass emergency legislation to do it, which is what some were urging her to do. She just went and whinged about it in a newspaper that doesn't look particularly strong. Mm. So I think she was getting criticism from all sides. Uh, and you know, to, to go back to... Richard Tice, for example, because I spoke to him last week, he wasn't very impressed with her, even with the rhetoric that she was pumping out. Seth, Brahman seems to bet on the idea that Palestine support protesters would invade the Senate's half. And the male in particular seems to be gagging for that to happen. Mm. And yet in, if, uh, in, in the event, she actually incited Tommy Robinson and his Stone Island mates to show up. Is it too dark to imagine that that is actually what she did want? She wants the chaos. I'm loath to say what exactly what her intentions were, but I mean, it's very clear where her sympathies lay on all of this. You know, the fact that in the face of two protests, she almost entirely talks to the exclusion of all else, just about one, uh, when there's another protest going on at the same time, which is overwhelmingly violent. And that's very clear. I mean, you see 82 people being arrested on the same street for the far right protest yeah. just in one incident. Um, what's Curious is, I mean, I, I, I largely agree with, with what Rachel said, but I think one thing about her resignation is uh, where I slightly differ is that I don't think she minds actually resigning at this stage because she has, having been Home Secretary on her CV now, she's been Home Secretary for the best part of 14 months. That's ticked the box. You know, in this crazy era of politics that we're in, 14 months is actually quite a long time, weirdly <laughs> enough. Um, and I think she's been the worst Home Secretary we've had since the last time Suella Braverman was Home Secretary. <laughs> I mean, don't forget that she was sacked by Liz Truss yeah. you got to go somewhere um, to get sacked by Liz yeah. Truss. And she was sacked for breaching the ministerial code. And then she was reappointed by Rishi Sunak six days later. So she's the worst Home Secretary other than Grant Shapps, who managed to not create a total disaster in the six days that he held the job. Yeah. You're a person with a long historical memory. Who was the previous worst Home Secretary? Are we oh, going to go back God. to, you know, Lord <laughs> Liverpool or something? I'd go for something like David Maxwell Fife. <laughs> Which most people can't even remember. Give, give, give us a reason why. 1950s hanger and flogger, just not a particular. He basically tried to string out the death penalty in this country for longer than its natural existence. When a lot of MPs who weren't even particularly liberal were saying, I'm not sure about the whole public executions thing. Well, if they can bring back David Cameron, I'm sure they can bring back David Maxwell Fife. He'd probably do quite well in <laughs> reanimating the dead. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Rachel, um, the New Conservatives are meeting. The New Conservative clack, the Miriam Cates and her horrible mates, the trad conservative right wingers, are meeting right now, I think, as we record the podcast yeah. uh, for their reaction to Bravman getting the boot. Is she really the front runner of the hard right or is she just the best they've got? Well, the right wing of the party is quite a few different factions. 
Um, we talk about it like it's one, but it isn't. There's the Liz Trust free marketeer faction uh, who they basically just want tax cuts. And some of them are quite socially liberal. There's the Miriam Cates, Danny Kruger faction, the new conservatives who are considered right wing, but are actually quite more to the left on state intervention and 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 some sort of state support, but have sort of very socially conservative values. And then there were the Brexity lot. And they're all kind of grouped together as being the right of the party, but actually they have a bit of back and forth. Um, the reason for pointing that out is that I don't think there is a kind of cohesive, large group that is behind Bravman. Um, because a lot of the Brexit types actually would prefer, say, Kemi Badenoch, who has got strong, she's got strong Brexit credentials, but she's seen as serious and, and not too mad. Whereas, you know, Swella Braverman spoke at the New Conservative, sorry, the National Conservatism Conference in May. She was like the headliner there. One of the interventions we talked about, like you wouldn't normally have a cabinet secretary go off and do a speech at a fringe conference. But on a lot of the sort of social conservative stuff. Let's encourage people to have lots and lots of babies. That's Miriam Cates' thing. She's kind of not really there. So it's a group of people who all dislike Rishi Sunak for slightly different reasons. And yeah, they're having a meeting at the moment. A couple of weeks ago, we had some reports of the letters going in because he's been prime minister for a year. That means they can start putting in letters of no confidence. I had a uh, I had a text today, a WhatsApp from an MP going, you know, this could tip our letters over the line. And you're like, yeah, but you're not really agreed on what the next bit of the plan is. So I think it's a lot of saber rattling but the the chances of them actually getting together this week and going, yeah, we're going to get rid of Rishi Sunak and, and here's our plan to install yeah. Swala Bravman in the year before an election, I, I don't see that happening. I just love your idea of not too mad. Just mad enough. <laughs> not too mad, not too crazy. I'm trying to describe it from their perspective. Yes. They do know they don't have to depose a leader every time they get the opportunity, right? Like that's, yeah. I get that the... Like, Recent history would suggest that they would, but, but I just find it funny that, that they can. Yeah, yeah. it's addictive. <laughs> Shall we talk about bringing David Cameron back? Let, we're bringing Cameron back, like Justin Timberlake. Yasmin, how does it look to you um, that you can just have someone parachuted into a great office of state overnight, and in order to do it, you just like make him a baron, bingo, like that, and he's straight in. I read the push notification like three times because I didn't understand. I was completely bewildered. Um, didn't A, didn't think it was possible, learned that it was, and then still kind of came right back around to you have how, how, many cons- how many MPs do the Conservatives have? 350. And of all of them, there wasn't a single person who's been elected and has a constituency. Fabricant that- is available. Oh, he could have had anything. <laughs> and, and they had 237 peers. So they actually could have chosen from any of those, but they needed to appoint a new one as well. Yeah, it just struck me as like, A, I didn't have that on my bingo card, and B, it just must be so dire that you've... D- and what's funny is that he's not... like There were other former prime ministers on the back benches. He could have gone you to any of them. Are you, are you saying sort of Theresa May would have made more sense because no. she's an MP? Uh, well, no, I just, it's more I just didn't know you could do it. And I kind of don't know what it is specifically about Cameron, especially from a foreign policy lens, apart from him being prime minister, that makes him particularly suited to the role. I mean, I've got one suggestion, which is that he won them two elections. Yep, you know what, that's... And, that's, but, and, but, that's but, 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 and they've got rid of Boris Johnson, who's the other one. There's, a, there's a bigger loss He kind of won the elections that don't count because like the, the Brexit bloc of the party doesn't really think that they were real victories because it wasn't really the Tory party. He's there's not particularly loss, popular though. anymore, is This he? is a government of an old Wickhamist with old Wickhamists, with old Carthusians, with old Herovians. There aren't enough old Etonians, oh. arguably. Oh, the diversity mm. higher. And so mm. it's it's ticking that box. I thought you were talking about Time Lords for a minute then. When you said Etonians, oh, right, oh, that's what he's talking talking about yeah. um but i mean this is you know th- that question of popularity i mean obviously bringing it back certainly shoved braverman to the to the sidebar of the headlines but everybody who supported brexit hates david cameron everybody who opposed brexit hates david cameron because of brexit and people who were not around then or couldn't vote then what all they've got to go on is everybody hates david cameron so is it necessarily a good idea I, I'm going to speak up in defence of this. I think this actually does make a lot of sense. One, it got the Braverman story, as you said, like down in the headlines. And yes. I'm not saying the whole thing was just a dead cat. 
but uh, I think Ted Cameron. <laughs> Dead Dave. No, but I think if you wanted a really showy kind of appointment, you absolutely got that. Secondly, like he is a really good communicator as politicians go and this is a job foreign secretary which is all about representing britain on the world stage having meetings with world leaders not being an embarrassment if you look at people who've held that job before <laughs> boris johnson an embarrassment in that role liz truss absolutely an embarrassment in that role cameron is a safe pair of hands uh, and he's someone who i think actually took seriously the idea of politics being a form of public service and i say that not as somebody who's a massive fan of anything that he did as prime minister but i think he got that Theresa may is somebody else who got that politics as a public service and therefore it is an honor to serve your country and you're not going to use being foreign secretary purely as a platform to try and destabilize the current prime minister i'm not sure how many people there are on the current sort of crop of of high profile politicians who yeah. you could say that about he's not going to embarrass rishi sunak as far as secretary. <laughs> There'll be a way, I'm sure. But the fact that he can't be prime minister again kind of helps. He's a busted flush. He's had his go. I mean, I'm not going to say he can't be prime minister again. Well, he, he, I mean, as, anything can happen. He has been discovering <laughs> the British constitution yeah. is weird. Just, well, as a friend of, a friend of mine, uh, commentator writer David Quonset was just tweeting, oh, shit, I'm in the cabinet. Yeah, it just <laughs> happened. I was walking down the street minding my own business. I have to ask you, though, Rachel... Did you have to find the sick bag when Ian Dale said that moderate Tories were texting him saying, Daddy's home? Yes, and I am not going to comment further on that because it makes me feel unwell. It is very odd, isn't it? The psychosexual nature of the Conservative Party. I also don't think it's true. Mm. I think maybe somebody texted him that as a joke and he decided to tweet it and now it's a thing. I refuse to believe it's a thing. Fake news. Didn't fake happen. News, <laughs> fake news, fake news. Um... Seth, though, I mean, the, the ugly smell of the Greensill scandal does hang around Cameron. And I insist that we refer to him as Baron Greensill at all times, <laughs> like Baron Greenback from Danger Mouse. How could he clear the House of Lords Appointments Committee so quickly? They can't have put him in early, can they, knowing this was going to happen? Well, Holak has actually complained in the past in some of their public comments about being rushed on this and about being told, you've got 24 hours, we want to make this announcement tomorrow, you've got this long to basically do a Google search. And they, <laughs> they're, 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 effectively, they're given um, a, a reference from HMRC about a uh, candidate's tax affairs and they're given a reference from the security services. What I wouldn't take for granted is the idea that they are happy about how the consultation that's happened. Uh, what we know from the inference around the whole Liz Trust list being monitored is that Holak have been meeting quite recently. So it may well be that Cameron was being nominated at the same time as that. But we don't know whether they were given a fortnight or 24 hours to look over this. What's going to be fascinating to look at this is the register of members' interest. I mean, I think Cameron's register entry is going to be full of extraordinary things. Um, I mean, one of the rather obvious conflicts of interest that comes to mind is um, he very famously uh, resigned from White's Club because uh, he discovered that it's a men-only club after... 25 years as a member um, and uh, he, he made that principled stance and then when he left the office he rejoined very very quickly thereafter and I only mention it because um, one of his fellow members happens to be uh, the king who just appointed him uh, the king does not like being dragged into constitutional controversies like that Good heavens. Um, well, apart from all this fun, there are a few little sort of tiny minor uh, things to consider, like James Cleverly as Home Secretary. Is he enough of a bastard to be able to be a good Home Secretary? <laughs> I mean, I think being Home Secretary turns you into a bastard. And, and I say that for all parties. I think it's a completely dysfunctional department, the Home Office. It's trying to do too many things. It's got too many different priorities. The stakes are really high so you have even people who go in there with relatively liberal ideals like say Amber Rudd end up giving sort of preposterous speeches um, and, and clamping down really hard on everything because the default home office mindset is to ban it um, that said I think uh the reason for putting James Cleverley in that role is he's somebody who Rishi Sunak thinks won't cause trouble like Swella Braverman did, mm. won't use it as a platform to run a de facto leadership campaign. Although James Cleverley is tipped as being one of the, the front runners in the next leadership contest, uh, somebody who could unite the sort of one nation moderates. Uh, and certainly for him, having been foreign secretary and not had any major disasters and then being home secretary for a year and not making it worse than she did, that could be good on the CV. 
I liked the um, the tweet they put out, which is that James cleverly will stop the boats. But the angle they shot it from made him look like one of those giant robots from Pacific Rim, like he was going to do it personally. He's going to stride out into the channel and just pick up boats and chuck them around. It's I astonishing. Mean, the new Marvel character. New Marvel character. It's quite surprising the Conservatives haven't tried that yet. It, well, yeah, it's a big infrastructure project. Um, and Theresa Coffey's gone. Good news for sewers. Bad news for sewers. Everybody's just going to hear Steve Barclay is moved from health to defro, and I'm not sure you could say that the management of the health service has been so stellar that now we can have that expertise in our environment department. Therese Coffey is someone who I actually have a bit of sympathy for because everyone I know who's worked with her says she's like really, really lovely and just a wonderful, nice person to work with. She's just got a brief where... You know, everything's happened to be falling apart on, on her watch and the proximity, the closeness with Liz Truss, who's a close ally of Liz Truss, mm. doesn't really help her either. We've also got our 16th housing minister in 10 years. I think that's All right. passionate about housing, as Hannah Fern of this parish pointed out, every one of them passionate. Yeah, but not not building any. Actually, I feel very sorry for Rachel McLean, who who was the, the one who's just been ousted because she was passionate about building housing. And now we've got Lee Rowley, and I had a spat with him once on Politics Live about building new houses and counting the votes of people who are existing residents over the ones of people who might like a home one day. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of new people in a lot of posts that are kind of quite important, like health and crisis and housing yeah so just to wrap this up just as a little kind of footnote where does this leave sunak in number 10 still still just yeah. about yeah uh emptying larry the cat's litter tray somebody's got to do it <laughs> Now, it's a busy week, but not so busy that there isn't time for another exciting podcast from the House of Podmasters. We've been reimagining our much-loved geopolitics podcast, Doomsday Watch, for a brand new series, and I can now tell you that it's back this very week with a brand new name and a brand new presenter. This is Not A Drill is the new name for the series, and the new host is friend of the podcast, and oh God, what now regular Gavin Esler, the phenomenally experienced BBC foreign correspondent and Newsnight presenter. We've got a fantastic set of new episodes, with, and there's even amazing brand new theme music from Paul Hartnell of the legendary electronic band Orbital, who did the music on our first series. I'm very, very excited about that. I spoke to Gavin about the new series and what we can expect. Well, it's called This Is Not A Drill. It's going to be an exploration of some of the very difficult problems, intractable problems sometimes in our world. We'll be ranging from do we really have one year to save American democracy or is Trump coming back to what to do about Ukraine, which the war is still going on, to the centuries old, one could say, uh, troubles in the Middle East and elsewhere. And we'll be talking to the top experts, people on the spot, the the, the ones who help try to solve problems rather than create them. The first episode of This Is Not A Drill is out on Wednesday. It's out right now for Patreon backers if you want to hear it immediately. And it will come out on the old Doomsday Watch feed, so you don't need to resubscribe. It's just been renamed. If you're not listening, then now's the time to start. Just search This Is Not A Drill on your favourite app. Now, let's choose some heroes and villains. It's time for Hero and Villain of the Week, and the rules are each member of the panel presents a hero and a villain, and I choose the winner. Um, Yasmin, let's start with you. So my hero, well, heroes, because I can't really narrow it down to just one, I think would have to be the doctors and nurses who continue to work inside Gaza's remaining hospitals. Mm. Um, obviously, the reports out of those are, are really distressing, but um, I've been in touch with, with at least one of them. And um, yeah, just to hear kind of the conditions they've been working under and the bravery with which they do it um, is really incredible. And my villain is Douglas Murray, who's made some really, I think, questionable commentary on Israel um, and Palestine, which I hasten to guess he couldn't have pointed out on a map before this all kicked off. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong, but I would check out those comments because they're too bizarre to paraphrase. 
Seth, how about you? Uh, my hero with a caveat is Holak, for the reasons we've gone into. <laughs> um, I, I think just over Mark Littlewood's uh, non-approval, it seems. My villain is Morgan McSweeney, Labour's Director of Strategy. There's a fascinating story in the Sunday Times about the £730,000 that was raised by Labour Together, an organisation which he ran um, from, I think, 2017 to 2020, uh, much of which doesn't seem to have been declared or declared on time. Um, and so that for somebody who's going to be running Labour's election campaign, some serious questions about um, how they resource these sorts of things. And these are the kinds of bits of carelessness that actually could spell real trouble for the next government. Mm-hmm. Rachel, who are your heroes and villains? My heroes are the Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights, who last week uh, won a ballot initiative in Ohio to put in the constitution safeguarding of abortion access and uh, I think this is incredible uh, and I also think it's been a year and a half since Roe v Wade was overturned the Republicans clearly thought that they could just roll back reproductive rights and that nobody would hold them to account or vote against any of that and we're seeing sort of state by state people going no actually we quite well, I like reproductive health care um, but it takes people like that to actually launch it and make it happen my villain of the week is, to go back to the reshuffle, whoever was running the Conservatives' Twitter account who insisted on announcing all of the new appointments with emojis and, like, st- strong arms and fireworks and the language of... I don't follow football, but the language of kind of football transfer season. <laughs> and I just think, like, the memification of politics has got to stop. There's a possibility we maybe talk about the memification of politics later in the week. Interesting. So, all right, very difficult, this one. I think the heroes... It, it, it's it's kind of an open and shut case. It's kind of got to be the doctors and nurses in the hospitals because irrespective of what you're thinking about the complex political background, the fact that, uh, you know, there's, you know, emphasis placed uh, on one case and on another case in different different parts of society, in different parts of the media, I think we'd all agree that working in a hospital with no power and attempting to keep people alive is is, is the definition of heroic. So I'm going to give that um, to, to the doctors and nurses in the, in the hospitals in Gaza. And the villains, I think, Rachel, you made a very persuasive case there. <laughs> we do not want to see, you know, agreement reached, exclamation mark, like it's deadline day. We do not want to see the kind of, you know, explosions and punching fists um and also you know it's 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 incredibly how do you do fellow kids isn't it this idea that you can present <laughs> you know cabinet politics as if it's uh you know something that should be sur- surrounded by a cloud of emojis yeah can and, you can you imagine if they started doing it on tiktok i'd be just shuddering thinking about it well i can't because i'm never on tiktok because i'm too old so they do whatever they like i don't care someone <laughs> likened it to the love island announcements like when they brought yes. a- um, adam collard back like he's back and <laughs> like it's david i Cameron. think it would be so much better if love island was announced the way politics used to be that His Majesty the King is pleased to confirm that <laughs> such and such has been kicked off the island for not being sexy enough and, and like a Dieu et Mondroit thing at the top. That'd be much better. We could use for some of the minor members of the royal family. Well, mm. they need something to do. Well, it's a very hard job. As anybody who lives in a city knows, the idea that the fireworks all finish on November the 5th, or bonfire night, as it used to be called when I was a kid, is fanciful. They start in about September and they keep going until the new year. Councils across the UK used to put on big bonfire night demonstrations for free. But since the pandemic and the cost of living crisis, they've been slowly disappearing, as of many entertainments and get-togethers that the council used to provide. Since 2010, spending on culture and libraries has been slashed by over 40%. And only two departments have been cut more than culture. They are street cleaning and road maintenance. As local councils get harder pressed for cash, are we at risk of pricing working class kids out of culture and even out of a bit of free fun? Can we remember the first time we saw fireworks? I mean, you weren't in the country, Yasmin. You have your fireworks in the daytime when you can't see them properly. Fourth of July. Wait, really? Oh, no. I mean, we put them on. I, I think of Disneyland, weirdly. Uh, I like, right. always associate fireworks with that. Um, yeah, Fourth of July is kind of the, the classic. But weirdly, yeah. I've never... So it's always a sort of thing where... I don't know if you can buy them here if it's legal, but in the States, at least, I think, California, you can go and buy fireworks. So, like, people would just buy them and, like... Set them off. Yeah. You can um, you can buy them. Oh, here, you can. And you should not be able to because a lot <laughs> was, of people do and do not do it safely. I was gonna say it's definitely illegal in some places, but I just my memories of fireworks were, uh, you know, something that you would just go buy and like set yeah. off, not something that like 
your community would provide, though, obviously, that's that's quite nice. Like I said, when I was a kid, I used to think it was called bomb fire, and I, as in there is a bomb. I was perpetually disappointed every year. It didn't blow up this time. <laughs> Just looking at Parliament every year, being like, this will be the year, don't Just worry. Just in the back garden, really. <laughs> that does segue perfectly to my first real memory of fireworks, which is we had some at home, and my cousin threw the cardboard casing of them onto the bonfire as fuel, and we were like, should we do that? Should we not do that? Uh, and about... Three minutes later, the bonfire exploded in pink and green flame. We all ran for the house because you should not throw the casings of fireworks onto the bonfire. Who knew? Uh, and it was like it's it's seared in my memory as this like terrifying but amazing life death experience. Yeah. So Rachel, uh, your colleague Anish Chikilian at the New Statesman points out that. Uh, the Tower Hamlets, uh, one of the poorest boroughs in London, has cancelled this completely. And the nearest one costs £17 for adults, £11.50 for kids and £4.50 for the under 10s. This is like more expensive than going to the pictures. It's really expensive. And I would say, like, everyone go read Anish's article because um, one of like, what she's highlighted perfectly is as councils are more and more cash strapped, there's this sort of framing that we can't have community fireworks displays because we need to fix the hole in the road. And obviously, the roads are more important than fireworks, but that there used to be this community leisure sense that you could just bring your kids to the fireworks display and it was a fun night out and it didn't cost anything and in some of the poorest areas of London that's just gone and leisure has become much more of a private pursuit and no one's saying we shouldn't fix the roads or give that money to social care but something is being lost and it is really sad. As a mum do you find it ruinously costly to get kids these things? I'm just, I'm a stepmom, so I'm just going to... It's a mom. Thank, thank you, because lots of people, Miriam Cates would say that it wasn't. Well, um, well she can shut the... <laughs> shut up, Miriam Cates. I, I, I tell you what, the, the prices of things for a family of, of four are absolutely extortionate. We took the kids to the, the Roman baths at the weekend, and it costs mm, 60 quid for, like, what? an hour and a half. Roman baths <laughs> is quite high culture, though. We just just used to get taken to Blackpool Pleasure Beach and that was expensive enough. Well, I, like, I'm a classicist and I feel like it's very important. <laughs> Maybe that's not the best example, but it was like a thing where I looked at the ticket price and I went, oh, okay, we're here now, we're in the queue, there's nothing we can do. I guess we're spending 60 quid on this. Um, it, it, it does add up. Do you find that, like, so Bonfire Night, for instance, like, you've got to get in early and get tickets for things that used to... Or, or do, you, do you find ways of diverting the kids away from it? Uh, they're young enough still that a sparkler, as Paddington Bear would say, a firework you can hold in the paw, that, that does the trick. Also, we used to live um, up by uh, Parliament Hill. It was in walking distance, so you go to the top of the hill and you can just watch everyone else's free fireworks. So that's a, a piece of cash-saving advice. <laughs> just find a hill and watch them for free. Yeah, I mean... It is kind of depressing that everything has to be zero sum, doesn't it? Because you can you can run pretty much any form of municipal expenditure up against, as you say, social care or holes in the road or, you know, cleaning up the leaves or getting the dog poo off the streets and it will probably fall. Yeah, and I, I think this is part of this assault on what we used to call civic pride and this idea that actually communities would be brought together around these kinds of events. Um, more and more of the remaining events that there are, you know, like sporting events, are privately run rather than mm -hmm. being run by the council in this way. Um, and I mean, you talk about um, the value of uh, these sorts of events to working class culture, but actually it's value is as a cross-class thing. You know, we're talking in London right now, where most of the London boroughs, when they were formed with their boundaries in 1965, the idea was to pair off a rich area and a poor area. Mm. And part of the problem in how services have been provided is that you still get this segmentation and two tiers in very many councils. And actually, the value of these sorts of events is they bring people together across boroughs. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing that really struck me when I moved to London, was that, like, the rich areas and the poor areas are very, very close together and they're intermingled, mm. whereas elsewhere in the country you tend to have large areas, large suburbs where not much happens, large, very poor areas and little enclaves of, of, of wealth. But it's just not like London, which is a patchwork. And it's the same sort of salami slicing that sees the funding of public libraries being cut away bit by bit. You know, everything that we think of as being a communal space, actually, that's a shared facility. Mm. Yeah. I mean, can we blame councils, though? Because there's going to be a £4 billion funding gap, according to uh, the... I forget the name of the body that represents councils. But, you know, they, they have to make these difficult choices and it's hard to make a case for let's burn a bunch of stuff for entertainment. 
Well, full disclosure, I used to work in local governments, and you know a lot of this is actually the raw deal that they're set by central government yeah. saying, well, we control 90% of your funding, and by the way, we're taking away most of it. And they've actually increased their liabilities whilst removing their ability to pay for it. Mm. And we have seen a number of councils uh, of all different political persuasions going bankrupt or going close to mm. bankruptcy. And I think it is exactly that. It is there are certain things that council, councils are legally mandated to provide and there is a certain amount of funding they get and there is a massive gap between the two and we've just had kind of 10 years of not really talking about that. We've also had a long period of, of many of the councils have gone bankrupt because they've gone into unwise kind of commercial housing ventures and uh, you know entered the private market and simply not been able to handle it. Yeah, but again, some of that is because they've been given very little choice by central yeah. government who's taken away their budget and then said, you need to raise this sum of money and we are strongly encouraging you to commercialise your services, strongly encouraging you to develop, for example, conferencing hotels and use the revenue for that to replace council tax. Should we really be burning stuff in today's modern carbon-concerned world? Should well, we be I'm doing also... those drone things like the flying Captain Tom they did on New Year's Eve? The Fourth of July celebrations, I think for the first time in 10 years in Los Angeles, it was a drone display, which mm. I can't imagine that drones are necessarily um, af more affordable than, yeah. than fireworks, but they do last longer and they don't scare pets. I was, I was going to say, as a, as a pet owner, fireworks, I can love looking at them and love the smell because the smell is really evocative takes you right back while also being like there are a lot of dogs and cats that are really really mm. sad tonight but that's one reason that i think i would prefer there to be public ones that people can go to either for free or for very inexpensive amounts rather than people setting them off in their gardens um and terrifying animals at all hours and also making quite dangerous decisions as my family did back then do you remember the Hannaforth Parish Council thing on Zoom from a couple of years ago? You know, you have no authority yes. here, Jackie yeah. Weaver. There were some fascinating write-ups on that from people who actually went and stayed in Hannaforth for long periods of time to try and understand what on earth all this was about. And at the foot of it was actually uh, the role of councils on this. And it was mainly around Christmas decorations and fireworks displays. And it was differing attitudes towards, we want lower taxes and we don't believe the council should be doing this kind of thing or indeed should exist, versus people saying, this is actually something that brings our community together. So I mention this because tempers really flare about this kind of stuff. It matters. Well, it's the middle of November, so we'll be into the war on Christmas pretty soon. <laughs> and why have you got a Winterval celebration and not, not a Christmas celebration? So. Well, Catherine Burbelsang has already gone to war on various Christmas adverts. One of them, she's very upset that... Uh, some people don't like certain aspects of Christmas and so in the advert are burning them. One of them, she's upset because there's a there's no dad in the advert mm. and that means dad doesn't exist. And on that, I'm actually with her in that I think like Christmas adverts that show the mom doing literally everything and dad isn't really around. I think that we should move on a bit from that. But also, it's a Christmas advert. There's so much in the world to actually be upset about. You don't have to be upset about a Christmas advert. I did like the rejoinder to Catherine Burblesing, which was, oh, well, you'd probably like an ad with two dads in it, wouldn't you? And she just went, no. <laughs> you guys need a Thanksgiving. Well, actually, no, the history isn't great, but the food is. We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for Escape Routes. What are the cosy blankets of culture that we've been using this week to distract ourselves from the horrible world that surrounds us? Seth? It might surprise you. I've been reading a book by a Tory peer, but um, uh -huh. I've been really enjoying uh, Philip Norton, Lord Norton of Louth's book on the 1922 committee. Um, it's always a bad sign when people know who the 1922 committee are, but I think we've had ample reason for that. And one of the things I'm enjoying about the sort of rock star treatment this book has been getting is that it's a very dry, comprehensive academic monograph, but really very good. Right, OK, because the 1922 committee is having a moment. It's probably going to have another moment <laughs> as soon as uh, Braverman gets a, gets a hook into it. Rachel, what's your cultural moment? You know what my cultural moment is going to be. Would it be when you went to see Mamma Mia the party uh, at the O2 and yes. I ran into you in the tube station because I yes. did see the Chemical Brothers? Yes, uh, this is taking my mother for her birthday to Mamma Mia the party, mm. uh, which is an immersive theatrical ABBA-themed experience. I, I, that's, that's, that's really the only way to describe it. Um, but we were leaving the O2 Centre at the exact same time as your Chemical Brothers gig yes. was uh, was coming out. And uh, we ended up at North Greenwich Station with 
hundreds, if not thousands, of possibly slightly intoxicated, not you, obviously, yes. but I think some of your Straight fellow revellers yes. a little bit were. And my mother was a bit confused by the whole thing uh, as to as to where all these people had come from and why their eyes were looking that way. But uh, <laughs> but Mama May the Party is absolutely just joyful and wonderful and um, ridiculous, totally ridiculous uh, and very worth it. Well, I had a bit of a chat with your dad and he seemed very intrigued at the full-on sensory assault that is the Chemical Brothers Asset House light show, so we may be going <laughs> to see the next one. I just don't think that the Chemical Brothers Asset House light show is really my dad's thing, but maybe I'm wrong. You never I... know. You never know. Uh, Yasmin, how about you? Um, I'm just going to American cultural moment. It's Thanksgiving coming up, so I have a litany of Friendsgivings, really. Um, so I'm, yeah, the only thing I'll be reading are sweet potato and marshmallow recipes, which if you haven't tried, it sounds ridiculous. It's really, really good. Are you turkeyed out yet? I haven't had any yet. I'm sure I will be. Um, I have a few Friendsgivings lined up, so. I have a question. Yeah. If you have turkey for Thanksgiving, what do you have for Christmas? It, it's turkey again. <laughs> turkey again. Yeah. And that's why I, I actually like, I, I go strictly anti-turkey. I just think it's the driest meat. It's not enjoyable, but... I, I don't like turkey either. Yeah. Is this going to be like the Faulty Towers thing of duck done the two extremely different ways? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've never been the type to like deep fry my turkey. One of the Friendsgivings I'm going to will be hosted by a vegetarian, vegetarian and vegan friend. So there, there is a, a bit of diversity in the culinary sort of aspect, but yeah. Yeah, sort of put turducken or whatever it's called. Whatever, yeah, vegan turkey. I'll eat it. It's 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 the it's tis the season. Well, my cultural moment is I've got a brand new favourite artist, and she's called Tisha T S H A. And funnily enough, she was supporting the Chemical Brothers. Was she? She was. She was. Yes, she was on stage, and she plays uh, electronic music, which sounds a bit like uh, if listeners know Bonobo. Um, she's from Fairham near Portsmouth. Um, she's her music is just a combination of. You know, extremely kind of mind-massaging house music and great big bangers. But most importantly, um, the thing that she seems most inspired by is a tune called Belfast by Orbital, who I've already mentioned in this podcast, which is renowned as one of the most lovely and kind of elevating pieces of electronic music of the past 30 years. And it sounds like this young woman has been marinated in it since youth. So uh, she's great. Uh, and her album is called Capricorn Sun. It came out about a year ago. Um, and I think it's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. So I would recommend it enormously. And that is the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Yasmin. Thanks. Thank you, Seth. Cheers. And thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Uh, oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Um, thank you to everybody who's helped us sell out our Comedy Store gig on the 13th of December. All tickets are now sold. But if you missed out on tickets, we're going to be streaming it to our Patreon backers. We're going to be setting that up very shortly. So you can, if you're not in that London, and why would you be? Um, you can uh, watch it live streaming uh, via um, Zoom. And also there'll be a recording afterwards. So just search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast to find out how to sign up and to watch that. Thanks for listening to Oh God What Now. We'll see you next time. Oh God What Now is presented by Andrew Harrison with Yasmin Saran, Seth Tevor and Rachel Cunliffe. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Sweat. The, the Rude but fair. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God What Now is a Podmasters production. Oh God What Now.